0: Today we're going to start the session with a conversation with Mohanjit Jolly, partner at Iron Pillar. Mohanjit, welcome to the show. It's
1: a pleasure, Suman.
0: Well, it's, it'll be a great uh, conversation. I'm sure you've been in the industry for a very long time and have been following the level, evolution of the Indian venture capital ecosystem quite uh, for a long time. So let's. Uh, Let's start diving into a bit of just for introduction's sake, uh, just a bit of your background, and then let's uh, introduce Iron Pillar, and then we're going to talk trends, talk about the historical backdrop of the Indian industry, and so forth.
1: Absolutely. Again, thank you so much for uh, for having me. Uh, just uh, from a background standpoint, I am what you call an IBCAD. You may have heard of ABCD but IBCAD is an Indian born confused American Desi. So born in India, moved to the U.S. when I was a teenager. So I did my high schooling, uh, college uh, you know, graduate work, et cetera, here in engineering, in aerospace, uh, spent some years um, on the uh, defense contracting side, actually uh, building spy cameras for the U.S. military, I was part of the team that fixed the Hubble back in uh, the mid nineties, UCLA MBA, Launched an incubator at Caltech back in the late 90s, uh, did a joint venture with Andy Grove at Intel while I was at Mattel, the toy company. And then I uh, got a cold call from Guy Kawasaki, um, who's a bit of a legend in Silicon Valley, prolific yeah. speaker, author. And he had started a bank, uh, an investment bank called Garage, which pivoted to a seed stage venture capital firm after the dot-com crash back in the so early 2000s. So I'm an accidental venture capitalist But I've been working with startups uh, for about 23 years now, uh, initially helping them raise capital. And then over the last, well, almost 20 years, directly investing. So I was with Garage, that was the firm that Guy had founded back in the early 2000s. And then I was with DFJ and Tim Draper uh, from 2007 till uh, December of uh, 2015, and then launched Iron Pillar in January of 2016, and we're sort of six and a half year old uh, new firm and and, and having a blast through the ups and downs.
0: And how big is the Iron Pillar fund size wise?
1: So I can give you historical perspective, Um, not allowed to speak about what's going on currently, though, Uh, you will will know that uh, as and when we get certain milestones, but historically, We started the firm in 16. We actually did not raise capital in 2016. We started the process in 2017. Uh, We raised a a $90 million fund. Uh, That was our fund one. We had 90 million in commitments. Uh, We invested in eight companies from that that particular fund. Then as one does in the middle of the pandemic, we decided why not, let's go out and raise another fund. Uh, So we raised a uh, $48 million, what we call a top-up fund. To double down on the winning companies from Fund One, and so that got mm-hmm. oversubscribed, believe it or not, in um, sort of May, June of 2020, early days of the mm-hmm. pandemic, and um, and now, yeah, we're we're on to our our next vehicle, uh, which I cannot give you details about, but uh, mm-hmm. but we've been uh, we've been closing and and deploying capital, uh, you know, in our most recent uh, fund vehicle as well, and I'm happy to talk about some of those investments in this uh, in
0: this conversation and um, so from the let's talk about the positioning of the new fund uh, is it a seed fund post seed funds really or pre-seed where are you positioning the new fund
1: yeah so you know it's interesting my journey so again with garage it was seed stage i was writing 250 to 500k checks then dfj was more of a series a prototypical series yeah. a investor uh, Iron Pillar is actually further uh, sort of downstream from that. So our um, uh, you know, uh, stage uh, of the company where we invest is usually post-product market fit. And the focus for the fund, uh, the current vehicle, is invest in companies that are building from India for global markets. So from India for the world is the thesis which then leans more enterprise, more B2B than it does B2C. However, um, we do have sort of an 80-20 rule, if you will, or a guideline to say, you know, 80% of the companies are gonna be more B2B SaaS, 20% uh, maybe more uh, uh, consumer-centric. All of them are gonna leverage uh, the cloud and all of them, of course, are are, uh, heavy technology companies. So from a stage standpoint, we're more a post-series A maybe an A plus, a series B type of uh, investor, and we call ourselves early growth. So what that means is when companies, for example, on the enterprise side or the SaaS side, get to somewhere between 4 million and 10 million in ARR is when we come in and um, and lead or co-lead rounds. Having said that, one of the reasons I was actually intrigued by... By what you are doing is we actually start tracking companies uh, much earlier than when they need our capital, right? So even when they're seeded or they do their, you know, um, series A or somewhere between seed and A or whatever the, the new avatar of that round, uh, you know, from a name standpoint is, we start tracking interesting companies, engaging with them, building that rapport so that when, uh, you know, they get to a point where we Get excited from a direct investment standpoint. We can potentially preempt uh, the round, and um, and we've done that with a couple of companies in our in our fund okay. two portfolio.
0: Margaret, well, can we talk about um, some of the? You said you started your first fund with you invest in eight companies, and then you continued to invest in those eight companies. Uh, let's talk about some of them, and I just want to get a flavor of the kinds of companies that drew your attention until now to give a sense of what you would be interested in going forward
1: absolutely so look fund one was uh, and we have a concentrated portfolio strategy by the way I mean most of the folks who you may oh, have as guests on on the show you know may do 20 30 40 investments per fund in our case uh, the numbers are closer to eight to ten uh, investments for per fund and there's method to that madness, uh, but I'll get to that in a bit. Um, but specifically to your question, first fund was eight companies. Three of them were what we call India for India. Uh, so companies like Bluestone, which is a uh, omni-channel jewelry company, one of the largest uh, sort of privately held uh, jewelry companies uh, in India. Uh, we invested in a company called Testbook, which was an EdTech play for government exams, uh, for example, because we felt that that was a, a, a sizable market uh, in India. And then the third company, which we actually ended up selling uh, to Reliance, um, is called NowFloats. And NowFloats was, the idea was go after small kirana shops, small store owners, and give them a an incredibly easy way to get their businesses from a pure offline into an online or an omnichannel kind of play and to be able to do that
0: close? Just... So uh, in 1 million by 1 million long time ago so i knew that was right? close.
1: ah mm-hmm. okay yeah so we we led their you know series b and we actually played a very critical part in uh in eventually uh getting that exit um and and, and that's an entire you know that's an interesting story in and of itself in terms of you know why we decided to sell at that point versus continue the journey, uh, you know, over a longer period of time. So so those three, now floats, Testbook, and Bluestone, are more India for India stories. And then the remaining five are really India for the world. And I'll focus, I guess, on, on three of those remaining five, which uh, may be familiar to the audience and have, have really broken out out of Fund One. Uh, so the first company is called Unifor. Uh, Unifor is a conversational AI platform that most recently raised uh, $400 million, led by uh, NEA uh, in their Series E. Uh, this was earlier this year. And uh, mm-hmm. the idea is to go after you know uh, large enterprises that have more than 500 uh, call center operators, either captive or, or through other BPO uh, services. And how do you leverage AI to, uh, to remove human from the loop and have that human be a higher value add layer In that entire Mm -hmm. engagement and then and be to be able to do so globally in in dozens of languages and be able to actually have uh intent or or emotional sort of context in that conversation to understand whether uh you know the customer is actually getting more annoyed or are they moving towards a resolution and delight so the company has done incredibly well what's really interesting about that company is they spent seven years in india perfecting the technology they were in india Mm -hmm. private Limited incubated at iit madras and um, and then when john chambers the former ceo of cisco led the series b back in uh, 2016 or early 17 his prerequisite was that umesh the ceo had to move to silicon valley so the company then or umesh then moved to silicon valley the company flipped from an india private limited to a delaware c corporation a u.s inc and uh, we invested uh, back in uh, in 2018 uh, in their in their Series C, and they've raised mm-hmm. two on rounds since. So that's one company that's truly you know broken out and, and and is is valued at multiple billions of dollars. The second one, which is really interesting, is a company called Servify. Servify is an insurance tech play or insure tech play, based out of Mumbai, but now present in fifty five countries around the world. And what they do is, basically, it's a device lifecycle management software company. So whenever something goes wrong with your mobile phones, et cetera, uh, they are the go-to player for most of the OEMs, actually all of the major OEMs in India and many of the OEMs globally to manage the post-sales servicing and warranty uh, for, that, for that particular device. And amazingly enough, here's a company that's still in India, Private Limited. You know, the CEO sits in Mumbai. But they now have uh, companies like Samsung and OnePlus that have brought them to Europe, to the US. Um, they're in other you know, conversations. They run Apple's and Samsung's uh, warranty servicing uh, in India and other, other parts of the world. So that's another one. And the third one, uh, which is another consumer play, um, but an interesting one nonetheless, is a company called Fresh to Home. Fresh to Home is a vertically integrated fish, meat, uh, poultry company where the idea is remove layers of complexity and middlemen and go from source to doorstep in 24 to 36 hours. Hence the word fresh in the name uh, of the company. And and, and so uh, it's just absolutely remarkable. The company itself is, is domiciled in Singapore, started of course in India primarily, but has now extended into the Middle East. So they're in UAE and they're going to other parts um, of, of sort of the Middle East and GCC going forward. So it's a mix of uh, enterprise, uh, SaaS, some consumer, um, you know, India for India and India for the world. That was a fund one blend. Then we raised yeah. a top of fund. Top of fund was uh, to invest in these three companies in particular, Unifor, Servify and Fresh to Home. And we did deploy mm-hmm. that capital. But with fund two, the thesis has shifted slightly, which is Invest in companies that are building from India for the world. So there isn't necessarily a component of India for India from uh, you know fund two, but it's really India for the world. Is the why did
0: you make that uh, decision?
1: You know it's interesting. Um, well, one of the reasons is I'm sitting in in Palo Alto, so I you know I'm not going to be investing. I don't, I don't have um, my finger on the pulse necessarily of what's, what's going on in India. Having said that, um, I have my colleagues who are in India and the Middle East, and they do have their fingers on the pulse. Uh, but here, here are the three reasons why we as a partnership decided, at least for the time being, uh, with Fund 2 to go down this path. One is um, we think because the democratization of the technology stack. Thanks to hyperscalers like you know, AWS, Google Cloud, Azure, et cetera. You can have people, you can have world-class people sitting anywhere in the world, building world-class products for the world, yeah. right? And who better to do it than software developers and software engineers and, and just brilliant uh, minds in India, right? And, and one thing that the pandemic has taught us is, clearly, you don't need to be in a particular geography. Right, to have an impact in that geography. So, so we we were thinking about this well before COVID happened, but COVID seems to have accelerated that particular uh, thesis. So one is democratization of, of the tech stack so you can have people sitting anywhere in the world building for anywhere in the world. Second, and this is uh, quite important to, to understand, is the currency risk, right? So from our standpoint, you know the rupee depreciates three, four, five percent a year, and therefore, uh, you know, to get returns in dollars, which is where most of our LPs are investing, you have to run, you know, fifty percent harder to get the same returns in dollar amount rather than rupee amount. So to give you a precise mm-hmm. example, I was in India from two thousand seven to two thousand twelve. In two thousand seven, the rupee was somewhere around thirty-eight, thirty-nine rupees to a dollar when I left. In 2012, it was at 62, 63. And therefore, in repeat terms, you know, if the portfolio does really well, it, it doesn't mean a whole lot because in dollar terms, we were taking, you know, 50% hit purely based on currency. So when you have oh. this India for the world thesis, the currency depreciation actually helps you, meaning the revenue is in dollars and the cost, the cost in rupees right so most of the companies that we've invested in out of fund 2 thus far i would say something like 75 80% of the headcount is in india right mm-hmm. 20% or so is in the us right so from mm-hmm. so it's it's, a, it's it's a wonderful uh, outcome from a unit economics standpoint and so the dollar mm-hmm. goes much further in that sort of b2b side of things and the final piece is we looked at literally hundreds of companies and we slice and dice the data and what we figured out is the India for the World story the the you know has 2x the uh, the exit outcome what i mean by that is for every dollar invested you're able to extract 2 dollars out um you know twice as many dollars out i should say for a uh, an enterprise centric company than a consumer centric company so enterprise centric companies tend to be more capital efficient. So they take about 50% of the capital to get to quote unquote unicorn status than a consumer centric company does based on the analysis that we've done, right? So it's capital efficiency, it's repeat appreciation. The final thing is exit optionality. So Mm -hmm. if you have companies that are building from India for the world, uh, whether it's acquisition, whether it's IPO, um, you know, you just have a lot more options. If that company, let's say is, is, um, you know, it, it could be a Delaware corporation. It could Almost be, there, that's correct. Yeah. That's correct.
0: Um, a couple of questions out of what you said. One is, um, you, you hinted earlier that there was a story behind, uh, selling now floats to reliance, and there was. Some thought process behind it. I'd love to know what that was as reliance has become an, a very interesting player in the. Startup ecosystem—they completely changed the game with geo. Uh, what uh, what what happened, and and how is how did that play into your uh, cycle?
1: Yeah, so I, I think it had less to do with uh, reliance, to be honest, um, but more to do with the fact that you know we realized that uh, without going into a lot of details, we realized that you know the, the the company was hitting a bit of an air pocket in terms of mm-hmm. predictability replicability and scale mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so so you've got to you've got to figure out your go to market engine which which the company was struggling with a little bit and then you have to have sort of a retention strategy so you can't just be you know constantly churning and acquiring and churning and acquiring just not something that's, that's scalable so that was a little bit of what uh, you know the company ran into uh, at that point. Again, it was an early investment. We invested in the company back in '16, and and, and so timing, right, was was everything. And so you know, geo hadn't quite happened yet. Um, okay. It was still it was still you know some of the prerequisites for that particular company to succeed from a consumer mindset, from um, uh, you know technology adoption, etc., um, was not quite there. So. I think timing in these things plays a big role, and I would yeah. Equate well, timing I'm
0: selling. Uh, one of my observations on floats would be that selling to SMBs, especially that small small businesses in India, is really hard.
1: That's right. That's right. And so you know, you've you've got to have, I mean, feet on the street. The the the, the dichotomy in India. Um, you know, especially on the SMB side is the following, which is, Indians love to be pampered as customers, yeah. right? Whether you're on, on the SMB.
0: I touch low value sale.
1: Ah, <laughs> so exactly, exactly. So, you know, you, you, they want the high touch, but the high yes. touch doesn't work, right? The unit economics simply don't,
0: don't doesn't work. work. Unless
1: you, yeah, okay. yeah. So, so that was, that was a conundrum. And, and look, the, the interesting thing is we actually had a strategic term sheet on the table. Um, uh, I won't say who, but, but it, was, it was one of the financial institutions in, uh, uh, in India. And so the board had you know, uh, long deliberation around this. And, and uh, I give a lot of credit to my partner, Anand, who basically convinced the board and management to say, look guys, uh, even if we take this particular capital, and it wasn't a, a lot of capital, right we would basically be kicking the can down the street we would have added somebody else on the stack and um, so rather than do that let's you know let's let's exactly. put a bow on it and find a new home where the the team and and the employees everybody can continue to build this platform with the right kind of depth and breadth and reach mm-hmm. and so uh, reliance was therefore when we started the process you know a natural uh, home for the company and 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 as far as I know, they're doing extremely well,
0: which is a good segue into my next question. Um, I completely agree with you that when the India born global SaaS, um is on the deck uh, exits are kind of the same exit options as any SaaS SAS company, right? It's basically, you know, especially with enterprise software, it's the exit options are very standard. It's General, it's you know, it's, it's real democratization uh, of exit options. Also, uh, talk to me a bit about how the exit options in India have evolved for the rest of the uh, venture-backed companies.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, you know, I've been investing uh, in India for the last 15 years, and as you alluded to, I've seen India evolve. Over time, one of the biggest uh, issues that, you know, when we would go and pitch India and the LPs and, and the other VCs would say, well, we haven't quite jumped into India yet because, you know, a lot of capital has gone in. Not much has uh, has has been delivered in terms of harvest. I think that story has clearly changed, right? Uh, Flipkart was the watershed moment, uh, if, if I can just point to that. But then, then one can look at you know Freshworks as as yet another uh, watershed moment on the on the SaaS front. Exactly, exactly. And
0: Freshworks doesn't in that category.
1: Right, right. And look, I mean, one of the things I've been saying for a long time though is the following, and this is a little bit controversial, right? Which is, you have to look at India from a relative lens, not an absolute one, right? So when people fall into the trap of absolute returns and saying, well, you know. U.S. has returned this, and Israel has returned that, and China has returned that, and look at India—it's only a you know small piece. Then, then you're sort of convincing yourself why India is not an interesting uh, you know geography to look at, right? So then you sort of say, okay, it's very hard for me to sort of convince you from that point. You'll just have to come to a different um, sort of uh, state of mind on your own based on data that that you gather, but. If you look at India from a relative lens, I mean India today is orders of magnitude, um, you know, better from, from an exit scenario, an exit possibility standpoint than, than it was you know, uh, a few years ago. right? Yes, one can argue the IPOs happen and, and you know, the payTM and so on. Uh, it was a bit of a, a tumultuous, let's just say uh, journey. but you know cycles happen and headwinds come. And sometimes you you get caught right and that that has happened in every cycle. but the good news is that there is now a pathway, and there' will be others there'll be in Moby and Dhruva and there are a bunch of folks who have reached critical mass they're doing uh, you know phenomenally well in terms of top and bottom lines. the public markets as and when they come back, there will be a rush and and I think there will be you know several Indian companies or Indian origin companies or companies that started in India and then pivoted to a U.S. Uh, you know, Inc., they will be in the mix. And that's when we'll start pointing to that data. Now, having said that, there's been also a bunch of M&A uh, that has happened. Now, M&A may not be 100% acquisition, it may be control transactions, right? So, so several of those, uh, you know, Simply Learn and others, have also happened, which have provided liquidity for um, employees, for entrepreneurs, from for VCs. And so now you're in an environment where there is indeed, or there are billions of dollars that have been returned to GPs and therefore LPs. And so that cycle is starting to mature. Now, is it a, a well-oiled machine? And is it going, you know, like a Ferrari or a Lamborghini? Not yet. But we're we're, you know, we're somewhere between a Maruti eight hundred and a Ferrari, I would say. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm very bullish on on the prospects going forward.
0: There are two trends that I have observed, and a lot of this is captured in my other conversations with your compatriots. One is that the the Indian VCs who have done early-stage investments, and in some cases where the company has gone on to become a unicorn, let's say, or or a heavily funded later-stage company, the early-stage investors have sometimes exited into those later rounds this is a trend definitely in india there's a there's almost like an early stage investors exiting into later stage investors it has become a trend that's one Um, and the second one is you know capital efficient companies exiting into heavily funded companies that also seems like something that is happening is that there is a class of companies that are becoming the unicorn heavily flushed with capital companies and then there are others who have you know good metrics and good teams good etc and they're being acquired by those heavily funded companies these are two uh, you know i would say somewhat newer trends and somewhat different trends than what we see in silicon valley or uh, the u.s in general Um, the the trend of earlier stage VCs exiting into later stage VCs is not as big a trend in the US market. Um, The one that's about capital efficient companies being acquired by unicorns is I think a global trend at this point because these unicorns are having a hard time justifying their valuations and and that's where they're looking for shortcuts to, to backfill the valuations at which they have raised money. So I think that's definitely happening in India. Very interesting, very interesting conversation. Um, how long do you think it will take for uh, the Maruti to become maybe, um, not, doesn't have to be a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, but maybe at least a BMW?
1: So I think um, when we come out of this sort of cycle, my 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 belief, my projection is the following. I think um, uh, next year will be challenging one, but... Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when when the next bull run starts, uh, India is going to be playing a, a pretty big role uh, in, in you know, the outcomes at that point. And when I say a pretty big role, if you, again, even though we, uh, you know, come out with an annual sort of unicorn report and we've sliced and diced the data, I'm less interested in the term unicorn. I am more interested in the underlying value that that these companies are are providing for their customers right so if you have on the vitamin to cancer drug spectrum of products closer to the cancer drug than the vitamin then you're going to have that customer for a long time right you're going to have really interesting and you have you know interesting gross margins and year on year growth and retention and so on and so forth you know whether the market values you at 30 times multiple or 15 times multiple or 10 times multiple you are going to create value downstream. So as long as your focus is on that, and less on whether you're labeled a unicorn, which I think unfortunately a lot of, especially first-time entrepreneurs got into
0: because
1: yeah. they wanted that stamp. Uh, I think they did some unnatural things to get to that stamp. I mean, there are some crazy situations where you know companies raised twenty-five million or thirty million dollars just to be able to say, hey, we raised money at a billion-dollar pre. It 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 makes zero sense, right? And and now the same companies are it's no
0: sense at all. Yeah,
1: Yeah. doing doing down rounds and so on. So my answer to your question is, I I think um, you know it's it's not going to be a long time. I would say three, four, maybe five years when we come out of this uh, this J curve, uh, you will start to see uh, really Mm
0: -hmm.
1: absolutely, absolutely.
0: Um, I know you have to go, I have one last question before, um, before I let you go Um, what is your sense of the broader Indian geography? You know, there is talent war clearly, of course, recently, at least there's quite a bit of layoffs because of the unicorn situation not going so well and all the fundraising not going so well. But in general, there is talent war. It's a booming market, it's a booming startup market, and, and so on, plus it's a booming market in general with the rest of the ecosystem as well, the MNCs and so forth. So um, how do you see the rest of India uh, You know, from a talent pool perspective, second tier, third tier cities? Are you seeing your portfolio companies or companies that are pitching to you um, start leveraging the broader uh, talent pool
1: of India? I mean, the short answer is yes. Uh, you know, we are um, a, a very interesting firm in that we are not very IIT heavy. So when you look at the mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, especially entrepreneurs of companies that are broken out, not very many of them are IITians. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and the other thing that's interesting to note is there isn't sort of a Bangalore heavy uh, you know, center of excellence uh, presence either. I mean, yes, we have a few that have presence in Bangalore, but it's, you know, Chennai has become a real hub. So many right, companies- no, it's
0: own, yeah. yeah.
1: That's uh, because
0: of the fun I think.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, the, I think the, the, um, uh, those two companies definitely, um, but I need to actually drill further because uh, especially in fund two, I think we have three or four companies that are that are Chennai-centric. So I need to find out why that is indeed the case. And the second, uh, and and we have you know Kerala. So there there are some really interesting companies being developed oh, that's by. Very good. Yeah. So you know cities that I didn't even know about, right? Outside of Trivendram, uh we've got we've got companies that are building these hubs. I think it's a really interesting opportunity. It's a really really interesting opportunity for potentially a public private partnership to emerge. So if state governments, for example, if they take a little bit of a progressive step, in my humble opinion, I think they can attract these startups because there is this sort of talent war going on and you can use that and leverage that to actually build up that talent pool in your particular geographies. Having said that, we're now seeing companies that have presence in in Jaipur, in Bhubaneswar, in Mangalore, in other parts of, of India which was not a trend. I would say now it is a trend. And, and the other thing I'll say is because of this hiccup in the market, and I saw this during the GFC and I saw it back in 99, 2000 as well, is there's a sense of loyalty that starts to percolate in. So employees are not looking at island hopping for five, 10, 15, 20% increments and go to a different employer. They're saying, you know what? I'm gonna stay put. Um, I'm going to actually pay attention to my equity and my vesting and, and things of that nature. So I think there's going to be a little bit of a, a mindset shift that happens. I don't think it's going to um, counter the talent war completely, but it will definitely help. So to answer your question, we are seeing emergence in in Tier 2 and 3 cities. I think it's an opportunity for, again, government and the private sector to, to band together, to to build that uh, the skill foundation, if you will that startups can uh, can tap into downstream and and the third thing is we are seeing companies that have you know centers of excellence and development in uh, in other cities which i had not seen during my early tenure uh, looking at uh, indian tech startups
0: you know from the point of view of 1 million by 1 million Our strategy is to train these entrepreneurs who are coming out of those other cities as well. We have entrepreneurs from, like, I have a very nice team from Chandigarh, for instance, and so forth. So uh, you were talking about the government, private, uh, public partnership, but I also think that some of the secret of making this happen is just training these entrepreneurs, you know, to the level and giving them the access and, and, and so forth just from wherever they are.
1: Actually, it's very interesting. You brought up Chandigarh. So, um, one of the people I really admire is a gentleman named Jay Chaudhry, who's the uh, the CEO of Zscaler, uh, which arguably yeah, is um... one of those, the the you know the most uh, incredible success stories. And he set up his uh, development center when he was getting uh, Zscaler going in Chandigarh, at 350 mm-hmm. engineers in Chandigarh. He didn't go to Bangalore. He didn't go to you know Delhi or NCR. It was Chandigarh. And he said that was one of the smartest things he did. And yep. as a result, you know, he got that sort of uh, engine cranking and that has actually led to others popping up as well in, in, in those parts of uh, those yeah, parts. and of that's
0: stuff. what Sridhar did at, in Chennai with Zoho is he set up Chennai and then out of Zoho came Girish Master Of course. Uh, you know, Freshworks, we had them in the program for three years in 2011 to 13
1: amazing so, Amazing.
0: well great conversation very nice to uh speak with you and let's keep in touch
1: absolutely my pleasure anytime
0: bye-bye take care
1: take care